Hello and welcome to another edition of Razorwire. Today we are going to be talking about cybercrime as a service. I have a couple of fantastic guests in the form of Victor and Oliver who are going to be talking to me about the world of cybercrime as a service. What is it? How does it work? Is our nation states involved? What's the capacity for all kinds of different larceny related to that cybercrime as a service? Basically what we're seeing now versus what we could feasibly see in the future. So please follow us on this journey and let's talk about it. Welcome to the Razorwire podcast, where we discuss all things in the information security and cybersecurity world. From current events and trends, through to commentary from experts in the field, providing vital advisory on what it is to work in the information security and cybersecurity space. So, hello again. We have some fantastic guests here. We have Oliver again, who seems to be on most of our videos. Hello, Oliver. How are you doing, mate? Hi, James. I'm good. Thank you very much. And, you know, sorry to be omnipresent. No, that's good. It's great. It's great to have you back. And also, we have Victor as well, Victor Asin. Victor, do you want to kind of remind those out there listening to the podcast kind of who you are, where you come from? Because I think everybody knows who Oliver is nowadays. <laughs> All right. Thank you, James. Um, well, my name is Victor. I'm currently working at a company called Outpost24 as a head of threat intelligence. I'm uh, leading the team in charge of uh, doing investigations, research related to threat actors and the tooling that they're using, as well as, for example, uh, the services that they are selling. Fantastic. Right. So cybercrime as a service. I mean, where to begin, you know, um, uh, one thing I will say is is 25 years worth of experience. I mean, being able to see the, the the kind of changes from where it was 25 years ago, where it was a few people releasing viruses, that kind of thing, to kind of like when people realized that they could start getting card information from e-commerce sites and the sudden explosion of malware related to credit card number theft, that kind of thing. And the migration over to kind of like ransomware and, and DDoSing. And it's been an interesting ride. And one of the things I've always had a kind of keen interest in is, is just the, the, the criminal world in general. And I've done a fair bit of studying. And I've, obviously, I've seen a lot of films about things like, for instance, the Yakuza, where they operate very much like an organization. They have an actual CEO, usually. And then the, the subgroups underneath who all have their different functions within the criminal element, their different specializations, and they all kind of report in. And I always found that quite fascinating because it kind of emulates real life and the way that real businesses work. Okay, for very different reasons, and they're doing very different things, and feasibly some of them pretty terrible. But I did think, you know, back in the day, I, I wonder if that's the way that cybercrime is going to go because it, it's, the, it's the logical way of running it. And boom, here we are in 2023. I had to check the date there, God. 2023, and that is the, the reality of the situation. Victor, you kind of, you're, you're the intelligence guy here. I mean, what are you seeing currently in today's kind of cybercrime, you know, sort of market situation? We had the Conti leaks which were really good insight into kind of how things have been running up until kind of recently 
and I kind of got the impression from reading that that there was there was still this little way to go where they were still kind of galvanizing these different groups that they were then creating cybercrime as a service for, for different functions, even down to development. What are you seeing today? We've been seeing cybercrime as a service since I basically started working in cybersecurity back in 2014, something like that. At the time, you had uh, people offering their development services or even uh, selling, for example, credentials or credit cards that were stolen at the time, right? And uh, during all of this time, it has been actually really, really interesting being in the industry because uh, I've kind of got to see the evolution right, of uh, how these services sort of matured and mostly how the infrastructure around the services, because uh, services cannot exist in a vacuum, right? They need, uh, they need things to support them, right? How forums, for example, have been, uh, have been popping up, have been changing uh, their offering, the way they are structured, how the communications platforms uh, that the cyber criminals are using have been adapting as well to to all of these uh, to all of these changes, right? I think that the latest trend, or one of the most interesting uh, things that we've seen recently, it's about the credential theft. There's a, a big rise in credential theft, and uh, we believe it's motivated by a new sort of uh, way of operating um, that sort of democratizes the theft of uh, of credentials, uh, called traffers, which are basically groups of people who um, get together, for example, Oliver and I uh, could, could get together one day, right? And maybe with uh, $100, $200, we could purchase uh, a new type of malware. We could purchase uh, a couple of services uh, for distribution, for example, or maybe even uh, uh, something to, to obfuscate the sample, something like that, uh, as they call them, a food, uh, fully undetectable uh, packer, that sort of thing. And then we could trick or maybe just sort of announce that we're creating a new group um, to steal credentials and facilitate to uh, people who have uh, absolutely no expertise in malware development, have no knowledge of uh, how the malware operates internally, how distribution works. We could actually teach them how to use that malware to get credentials, uh, mostly through um, CEO and uh, um, redirections of that sort, right? Bringing users to, to a certain watering hole. This trend that we're seeing, uh, traffers, as I said, has been on the rise for like, I think, six months, something like that. And uh, it, don't, it doesn't stop growing, you know? And uh, the, the most interesting thing, I think, uh, surrounding this is that they've managed, again, to bring even, or to lower even more the bar uh, the entry bar, the entry-level bar for uh, for cyber criminals, right? You no longer need to understand how things work. You can just follow a tutorial that uh, they will upload to medium.com uh, about how to distribute the malware. And uh, you can just use the Telegram bot to sort of uh, generate new samples, contact the guy in charge of uh, promoting your YouTube video about uh, Fortnite skins. And suddenly uh, you have a, a bunch of people who are downloading your your amazing crack for Fortnite and uh, getting infected with Redline or Raccoon. I would say that this is the, the latest or most interesting thing that we've seen as of late in regards to services, at least. What do you think, Oliver? <laughs> you know, I, I have a similar view. I, I did a fair amount of research on the topic at Tenable, but more from an economics point of view. So I did research around the economics of, of you know, vulnerability and exploit brokers. I did some research around how that supply chain actually compares to a legitimate one. And it's fascinating because, as you mentioned, James, it, it absolutely mirrors what we're seeing in tech. You get 24-7 support. It's all SaaS-based. They're advertising re really very similar in terms of how the marketing looks on darknet forums, in terms of giving the features and the benefits and so on. And they're also quite competitive. And as Victor said, it has democratized 
uh, you know, the ability to, to conduct offensive cyber um, operations. I think before you had people who needed to have the means and the motive, right? The opportunity is what you make with the means, oddly enough, in cyber. But, but now you can have somebody who creates the means and gives it to other people who have the motive. And that, that as Victor mentioned, can be more traditional cyber criminal groups because they have to move into the digital realm. That's where all the money is. You can't rob a bank anymore. It's, I mean, you can, but it's not as easy as it used to be, right? And, and, and so a lot of crime has moved into that area. And of course, that's what you've seen enabled through this entire very self-service, turnkey kind of um, service economy. At the same time, though, it has to be said that there's pros and cons to this. It's harder now if you want to start from scratch. That ceiling of entry is much higher for a cyber criminal. And just like we are seeing big game hunting from cyber criminals trying to get MSSPs, we're starting to see law enforcement target cyber crime as a service operators because then you get a large amount of criminals in one go. So I would say there's a, you know, there's pros and cons to outsourcing, just like we have once again in the real economy as well. Well, yeah, because I mean, we talk a lot at the moment about, you know, uh, third party security and the concerns around how different services that we consume as organizations, you know, it all used to be, Christ, when I got back, you know, when I first got into tech over 20 years ago, you had your tin. It was in your data center or in your computer room because we still had computer rooms back then with bloody great big servers that would take four of us to carry, you know, to pull out of the rack uh, just to move. And now we don't have that. And we're very, very reliant on people like Amazon and, you know, Microsoft and IBM, you know, and, and various other suppliers for things like cloud services and various organizations have popped up providing services that are back-ended onto that kind of thing. And we have real secu- you know, security concerns. I mean, we recently saw Boots, BA, and uh, I can't remember the third one actually offhand. You know, but we had this big hack where where it was a, it was a company that, that that was on the back end of a third party that was moving documentation around, and they got they got done. Is that the same kind of thing that that, that the cybercrime guys are experiencing as well? Because they've got to have even higher levels of security because they do compete, and they're not exactly the most honest of people. <laughs> but, but it's 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 sort of the same the same paradigm that the companies face right now, right? Can you? For sure, for example, um, can you assure me that uh, for 90% of the companies that have their own infrastructure, their infrastructure, infrastructure-wise only, meaning not the applications, are safer than Amazon's? Is Amazon doing a better job at securing their infrastructure than, uh, I don't know, some small company that has a small server room or maybe um, has in an in a infrastructure provider a couple of services, right? In the past, what we used to see, at least, uh, was uh, that people had had the skills to to uh, set up a bulletproof server, to deploy a PHP application, to understand how to actually protect it and uh, encode it, right? Now you have a service, for example, Raccoon Stealer is one of the most prominent ones, um, in which uh, they, they manage the entire thing. You just go there, you pay a monthly subscription, and you get access to a really nice uh, dashboard in which you can generate new samples and credentials are stolen using those samples get sent to your account, right? So you have really highly specialized people maintaining those services and making sure that that infrastructure is secure and protected while they are basically getting a fixed pay rate mm. with little, very little risk. I suppose in many respects, they're not strictly breaking any laws. They're just providing a software service and it's other people who are using that service. I mean, obviously that's a bit dubious, but... 
That depends on which region you're in. I mean, you mentioned the honesty component. And in reality, we're not talking about some shady people sat in a cellar somewhere. They have offices and everything. And depending on the region, no, it doesn't get classed necessarily as illegal. And then at Feed, most of these groups operate from almost like a safe harbor from a geography point of view, somewhere where people might not you know, look too closely. Some of them have direct associations with law enforcement, with politics, with intelligence services, depending on the region. I, I spoke to a lovely gentleman, ex-Met guy working for a bank a few years back, who told me that he observes Eastern European politics because when there's an election campaign local, ransomware goes up because that's how they're funding it. And so the ties are actually sometimes very, very close there. But they aren't as dishonest as you'd think, purely and simply because a lot of these operators have been around a long time. They do have multiple businesses. And within that community, within that scene, there's a level of, I wouldn't say honesty among thieves, but there is a public component where they do exchange information. Like exit scams in crypto are one thing on a dark net exchange. I would say defrauding a bunch of criminal organizations is a completely different matter. Well, yeah. But I mean, you know, it was interesting because we had the Vulcan papers released recently, which kind of outlined that there was, uh, you know, a group of individuals in a part of the world who may or may not be having some kind of special operation at the moment, um, <laughs> who were very, very well funded by the by the nation state, and no doubt have been doing all kinds of larceny, you know, sanctioned by those guys. But I'm guessing they also did a hell of a lot that was that was off their own back. I mean, why wouldn't you? If you've, if you've gotten gotten some money from a government body to go and do stuff that you shouldn't be doing, you know, why wouldn't you get double payout, especially with, with some of the stuff that I was reading that they were getting up to there, and they were doing their own ransomware stuff as well. So they were, they were getting paid by, by their government, and they were getting paid, by, obviously, by people who were paying the ransom. It's, it's crazy stuff. Well... I mean, you also have to think of the usefulness for nation states to be able to use these kind of services for plausible deniability. You can use a middleman. You don't have to use your own capabilities that let you get, you know, be identified. Um, but an interesting thing, which I thought Victor said about the trend towards um, essentially credentials, because this access is a service. And uh, so what happened over the last couple of years is that there's been a, a, a like a, a huge rise in cybercrime as a service operators actually asking employees to collude. So they're actually offering money yeah, for I saw credentials. That. Yeah, yeah, insane. And of course, yeah, yeah. And, and and I think that's a part of it. And the other part is also this modularization, the fact that you can you can you can hire, you can almost build your own attack chain by plugging together different services. And you need access, right? That's that's a part of it. Once you have access, you're still going to have to deploy some kind of ransomware. Then you're gonna have to take you're going to have to manage for ransomware. And then once you get the ransom, you actually need to take that money and launder it. And each one of these components, you can buy an off-the-shelf service. And it, it also, for you in terms of how do you identify a threat actor if they keep mixing and matching it? And more importantly, they can keep changing how they act. They on the fly by just swapping in a different module or a different service. They can actually fundamentally change what they're doing. They might start on your network doing crypto mining, but by you know, buying something else or deploying a different module, all of a sudden it's ransomware. That also makes them very um, difficult to counter. And I mean, and that also has a really, that's actually an issue that uh, the threat intelligence industry is dealing with right now, uh, because even simplifying it way more right now, 
you know, uh, there's a lot of uh, cybercrime or you know ransomware groups that are providing the ransom as a service, as as you as you very well said, Oliver. And uh, most threat intelligence companies are providing TTPs and intelligence regarding that random that the ransomware as a service as a group. But in reality, each affiliate is the one that has different, uh, you know, modus operandi, different procedures. Uh, not all the TTPs belong to the to the ransomware, but to the affiliates themselves, who are maybe purchasing, as you said, from an EIB, an initial access broker, uh, a Citrix uh, access, so that they can get a foothold on a network and a company to deploy the ransomware, right? It is crazy because I've I have seen that they've also some well, a lot of them have got rules of you know rules of engagement as well. It's like you do not go for children's hospitals, you know, you 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 don't go for for that kind of. I mean, there are some that still will do that, but but there was like one instance where there was actually a, a message come back from the ransomware people saying, "Yeah, I'm really sorry. Here's the decryptor. We've looked at you and we realise that you're actually a kids' hospital. We don't want this. Have the decryptor back." I mean, that's sort of a Robin Hoodian approach, right, David? Um, they've had these sort of uh, rules of engagement for a long time, um, in which, for example, they would not target uh, Eastern European countries when they were operating from them, you know, and uh, they detected, for example, the language of the keyboard and that sort of thing. Um, why do you not attack a children's hospital? Because you don't want to attract, you know, the wrong kind of attention to, to yourself. Which they did, right, during COVID, if you remember the executive yeah. order, if you remember, and indeed, that's when we saw these rules of engagement about not targeting healthcare organizations, but exactly. it didn't last long. If you look, healthcare providers are still in the top five victim targets, right? And so I think some groups say we don't target them. That's an opportunity for other groups, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. All of a sudden you have a green field, yeah. Yeah, and I'm not attacking your own home, home turf. Well, you know, we, we, have a, we have a term for that in English, don't crap in your own nest. <laughs> I, think it, I think it's self-serving rather than, you know, I, I grew up in a pretty rough neighborhood and Nobody stole anything in our neighborhood either. It's just it's just neighborhoods are outlying. <laughs> yeah, you'd, you'd attract the wrong attention from the wrong people. You know, never never in exactly. your own place. It's like um, it's like organized crime in London back in the day. Uh, there was heavy restrictions from the boys at the top as to what you could do underneath. You know, we've all seen the the films of the craze and all the rest of it. And they did regulate their own criminal employees, underlings, people who were associated with them. I mean, they were still bad guys, don't get me wrong, but they did in many ways help out their own communities. Yeah, but that's that's what, what you're seeing right now as well, right? Mm. Uh, cyber criminals are not hiding usually um, well, in the countries they operate in. On the, on the contrary, they're sort of heroes of the people, you know? They usually mm. have money, they can bring value, they can hire people from 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 their own country maybe their own city to operate that uh, that that criminal infrastructure and uh, they are relatively safe from the police as long as they don't you know overextend themselves um, mm. to to a certain degree yeah i mean no extradition some people think if there's no extradition treaty it's not a crime yeah. And so, so from that point of view, <laughs> exactly. and, and you're right, and, that, and that's what I meant with the honesty. These people aren't, they're not some shady criminals. They are living in many respects, almost like a legitimate business person, that kind of life. They hire people, they have staff. In some countries, they are operating from call centers. To pay the taxes. Right? They are major, <laughs> major employers yeah, or patrons yeah. in their area. Exactly. And that's, and that's, and of course, if it's in a country that, that doesn't have strong relations with the countries they're targeting, we don't have extradition treaties, they don't have any legal agreements, it is almost like a get out of jail card, right? But they can't travel. Um, that, 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 that's one aspect. And the other thing is that laundering that money, making it worth something, has also created its own 
supply chain and economy. Like with a whole, like from from real estate in London, right, down to Bitcoin tumblers and all of these things which actually enable that whole thing. Because I mean, I know you're a big fan of Bitcoin, but you mentioned 2014 when you started Victim. So I, I was on, on, on IRC in, in 1999, 2000, 2001. And you had certain channels that had always been people IRC. popping in saying, selling zero days, selling zero days. And we never had zero days. It was garbage from packet store. But that's when that zero day selling started. And indeed, within about five or six years, you had a professional zero-day broker economy starting to build up. And that was how all of this stuff really kicked off. It was in, in iterative increments, right, until it became very, very professional. But what's interesting about this whole thing is just that it didn't blow up until they were able to monetize it. Because my favorite example is Rob, Robert Rodriguez. He got 20 years for credit card fraud. I was on and the IRC channel when they hacked the back door to get in to, to the retail uh, networks where they were skimming the cards. None of us knew what they were doing. That was the irony about it, right? But they were talking about it at the time. They had to work with criminals. They needed people to clone cards, go into a shop, buy something, and sell it at a loss on eBay. There's a limit to how large you can scale a business. Amazon vouchers as well. Amazon won't send goods to certain countries because of that. It was only until you had an untraceable digital currency that hackers were able to cut out the middlemen. All of a sudden, you didn't need traditional criminals. You could do this by yourself. And that, to me, was a fundamental change in enabling criminals to be able to do this. Um, we wouldn't be having this conversation if, if all they could use was Amazon vouchers. I mean, out of interest, I mean, you know, I see things have gotten a lot more dangerous than they were. You know, the, the, I mean, it was always going to be obvious, as you, as you kind of mentioned earlier on, Oliver, you know, gone are the days where you go into to a bank with a, a sawn off and you stick it up the nose of the teller and say, give us what's in, you know, give us what's in your, in your vault. They probably don't have anything really in the vault anymore. Not, not, not comparatively to what they used to. So the next logical step was obviously to move into cybercrime because it is it is a very easy, comparatively easier thing to do with a lot less risk associated. You're not going to get shot if you're in the states or you know whatever. You you can do what you need to do from wherever it is you 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 reside. And as we've seen the expansion of these as a services, so we've got access brokers, we've got developers for malware. Because like you, Oliver, I mean you know. I remember times when it was, you know, one or two sort of malware developers who would build something and then try and sell it on, you know, one of the, the, the what we call now the dark web forums. But now it's whole teams and banks of developers developing it, as, as Victor said, as a service with support, with, you know, all this kind of stuff. Has this, in your opinion, made things a lot more dangerous from a cybersecurity sense? Because... Go back 20 years, we were worried about a virus or we were worried about very, very different things to what we're seeing today. And the whole kind of lockdown period made it even worse because a lot of people in the world weren't making money because they were all in the same situation. So it drew a lot more people to those gangs. And actually, this might be a good one for Victor. In time, and we will see, this is going to get uh, this is going to get worse and worse and worse. We are we are looming an economic crisis, and uh, when the times are tough, you know that's always a precursor for crime. Even more so when uh, the crime itself is low risk, and uh, as we've been saying, the entry entry barrier is lower and lower and lower. Right, twenty years ago, the guys are stealing schemers. 
uh, or still stealing credit cards from websites or from point of sale uh, devices with uh, with malware they had to understand how to operate the malware they had to understand how to get into that uh, into that point of sale system right you remember the i think it was a target um, mm. credit card uh, theft uh, some I'm, years I'm, ago i'm a qsa and it's it's one of the 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 signature stories that that a lot of qsa's kind of talk about when we're helping customers kind of go through that process to get to that auditable point it was it was crazy how that happened and how that that panned out i actually spoke to some of the some of the people who were involved in in um investigating that it was really really interesting how how um how it all occurred and you look at it now and you think oh, it was so simple really you know back then it was it was kind of crazy stuff you know but now you can just hire a guy to do it right yeah. you can just pay like uh, 500 euros to get access to to one of those devices i, I mean it, it's interesting because as victor mentioned like like the, the the motive is for revenue right and, and and the means essentially is the fact that you now have this fantastic supply chain you've just off the shelf you can pay for it if you have bitcoin you can buy anything you want Really what enabled that is the fact that there are safe harbors for them to operate from. It's this combination of things. But when it comes down to really, it's, I always look, you know, coming from Gartner, for me, this is always an economics problem. In reality, if you look at shoplifting, we don't eliminate 100% of shoplifting. We're trying to make shoplifting so cumbersome and expensive that it dissuades the majority of shoplifters from doing it. And indeed, there's a spend of like, I think, I think they're basically spending about a dollar to prevent, you know, you know, roughly $12 worth of theft, something like that. So there's an economy equation. But when you look at countries where these groups are operating from, you have highly skilled, highly educated people. There's no local economy for them to tap into. They can't necessarily get a visa somewhere else. And for them, turning to this, it's semi-legitimate. It's a gray zone without an extradition treaty. So if you can basically improve their economic position, there'll be less incentive for people to do that. And that's a part of it. So poverty drives cybercrime in certain regions very much because that is the easiest opportunity you have of translating your technical skills into something that resembles a technical career, even if you're in that gray black zone of the economy, right? Well, this is it. When you've got hungry kids at home and, you know, you're you're reliant on, on... getting something through the door and you're in a country where there's not so much help if you are out of work then you've got no choice i mean any one of us i'm guessing with kids would would do that it would period of time where you'd go right i've got to feed the kids now (laughs) you know i've got to feed myself got to pay my rent hopefully obviously we wouldn't but let's face it any parent isn't going to sit there and go oh well that you know we'll just leave it then but I, I think one of the things I wanted to ask you guys actually is, I mean, you know, we're very heavily focused on cybercrime nowadays, uh, and we, we are talking about cybercrime as a service. Is there the possibility? Because let's face it, espionage has been going on for many, many years between organisations. Yeah. Now, does this give you know if our organisations using the same? cybercrime as a service functions to attack their competitors. I'm not stupid enough to think that it doesn't work, and I have seen it in my career in the you know in the past. I've been part of some of those investigations. I mean it wasn't a massive thing back then, but you know, people would feasibly occasionally take take a pop at one another. But now you can get somebody else to do it. You can pay somebody else legitimately to just go and do whatever attack you want. Victor mentioned, you know, 
people who are losing their jobs giving over their credentials for their employees because you know they don't care anymore they're they're on their way out are we potentially going to see this moving into a more corporate espionage style of possibility because we do have this whole western east thing going on at the moment as we you know you'd have to be under a rock not to have seen that one where, where what are we looking at now i mean i would say that uh in regards to Western against uh, or West against East, the espionage is happening already. Um, we actually had a very interesting discussion uh, among the team about whether we've been seeing a trend of ransomware attacks that uh, target low-value companies, sort of uh, low-value-ish companies, and uh, they demand really small payouts. And uh, the discussion was about whether this was a smokescreen for an operation to try to camouflage, uh, for example, data theft. I would say that uh, in that case, you know, in a, in a, what, seeing it from the east versus west, uh, whatever theft that happens, I would say it's nation-sponsored. In the end, or at least nation-state-sanctioned, right? Um, as in, for example, China uh, looking for companies who might have interesting intellectual property, um, you know, means of production, that sort of thing. AI. <laughs> I, I mean, I, I, so there have been some accounts about corporate actors rather than corporations utilizing private intelligence services, private detective agencies, and, and I would say by extension, some of these cyber services. But normally they were personal vendettas. It was not a company policy. So it was like one executive against another executive is one example. If you Google for it, it was a big company. But like there's a big case for that. I just don't want to don't want to necessarily name them. And of course, there's I'm I'm aware of one incident that was a blast furnace, the the the, the first kinetic impact 2016, where a German steel manufacturer was targeted and they accidentally burnt down the blast furnace. I know that originally that attack was supposed to look like a, a cybercrime attack even though it was obviously a competitor trying to sabotage the steel manufacturing. They just made a mistake on the SCADA device and actually almost, you know, did the whole device. And that was that was them sabotaging that was that was exactly because because who else is going to get interested if a steel company loses a contract or, or, or creates bad steel, another steel company. It's normally something where there's a commercial interest and you know they were competing against um a lot of foreign companies for certain contracts. Those are the two incidents that I'm aware of. To be honest with you, is this something that you would know? Because the industry is there. There is a private intelligence industry that's growing. There's a private mercenary industry that's growing. I'd be surprised if cyber isn't included in that package, especially when you look at people like NSO, right? We, we know that there's some of the some of the the we're starting to see a light onto that. So yeah, but are there many known incidents? Um, you know, there are corporate spying scandals all the time. Uber were were caught installing like software into their drivers' cars. I don't know if they'd stop at that. Yeah, the, the, most of the incidents I've become aware of with industrial spying involved no technology at all. It was usually getting somebody on the payroll. I was about to bring up you know the incident that we had here in Spain with NSO and. Uh... Pegasus. I'm not sure if uh, that uh, reached you guys. Yeah. Do you want to, you know, just in case people out there didn't kind of see what happened there, do you want to kind of give a quick overview as to, to what it was? Uh, yeah, sure. Bas- basically, um, is the government of Spain basically paid uh, NSO uh, for a spyware um, that came fully packaged, you know, with uh, zero days and that sort of stuff so that uh, they could spy on politicians, right? So who's to say that uh, really big corporations? don't have access to that sort of technology. 
you know, who's to say that uh, they cannot contact NSO? Allegedly, you know, they're not supposed to sell only to, or they're supposed to sell only to authorized, uh, you know, um, authorized governments and that sort of stuff. But who's to say that, uh, right, Amazon or, or Google or one of the big ones is actually, and is that isn't actually paying, you know, for for this sort of software to maybe uh, infiltrate competitors' uh, infrastructure? I mean, the, the modern way is that you don't have to try to infiltrate them; we just download your software. Uh, but <laughs> well, yeah, of course. <laughs> yeah. Well, the, I mean, the other thing is, you know, we did have like a spat in the UK of newspaper organisations hacking phones of celebrities and what have you. I mean, it's it, a slightly different thing from from some of the stuff that we deal with, but it's it's still in the same kind of remit. It's still, yes. well, I, I would I would say it's still cybercrime, right? They're, yeah, in the yeah. end, they are doing like cyber uh, exactly. Where's the cutoff? Where, where, where on that spectrum do we say it, it's, it's a crime or it's a gray zone? I don't know. You know, it's hard to say. Yeah. So do you guys think this is, this is going to get more and more dangerous as we go on? I mean, we're seeing a massive rise in information security awareness. And I mean, geez, every single day there's another breach um, of some form or another. And we're kind of hitting a period where it's getting so easy now to conduct these or to pay somebody to go and do it. Are we really facing this, this, this serious, serious problem? Because, I mean, let's face it, the economy of the world isn't exactly in the greatest space at the moment in time, and it's not going to take a lot to, to tip it up. Is this going to potentially be some, some, you know, cause some serious, serious problems going forward, be it cybercrime, be it espionage between organizations or nation states or whatever we're, we're trying to fight this battle here on a scale we we don't we don't have the tools necessarily to deal with this kind of level of 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 crime i mean i would say that right now it would require a massive shift um at a maybe even a state level to actually put a stop to the snowball of cybercrime right because right now most companies i mean the best approach that you can follow right now is to basically be more secure than uh, than the other companies, right? It's not uh, about everyone being protected. It's about me being as a, a less interesting target for cyber criminals. You invest just the necessary amount of money to deter that cyber criminal from coming into your company and maybe looking at that competition, right? Uh, as opposed to uh, strengthening all companies in the same way and trying to, you know, sort of uh, um, create this net of uh, uh, of security in which everyone is at the same level, hopefully, you know, really high one, so that uh, it's not worth it anymore to hack companies. But as long as we are not on that level, you know, there will always be someone who's weaker and someone who cyber criminals can go after. Mm. I, I agree with Victor. I've written on this, I, I think, I, it's five, six years ago, the fact that this isn't just a technical solution, right? As Victor mentioned, you're trying to increase the cost to the criminal of conducting a cybercrime. But in reality, like there's a limit to that, that, that you can achieve as a company. There has to be also further um, pressure on them from a legal point of view, not only from a law point of view, but also enforcing those laws and then punishment. And there has to be large global consensus on this. You have to. I, I, I used to like the, the the legal status of pirates. It was hostis humanus generis, enemy of all mankind. Nobody gave them shelter officially. That was the whole idea around it because they preyed on everybody, in theory. 
And so this kind of a concept for, for, for cybercrime operators, because they do tend to, on average, prey on most people, right, is something which I think we need. But the whole idea is to disincentivize people even going into this field from multiple levels. Make it harder to succeed, make it more painful if you don't, if you get caught, and make sure that people have different alternatives rather than going into crime to begin with. It won't eliminate all of it, but right now, it's disproportionate. This is the background level of cybercrime is so high that insurances say they can't insure you. That gives you an indicator of how high it actually is. We can't hedge for risk, right? And so, so we have to do something, but everyone has a part to play. The government, enterprises, um, law enforcement, everybody has a part to play here, that we increase that cost. Victor, I mean, what... What are your thoughts? I mean, is the cat out of the bag now? You, you mentioned the snowball effect earlier on. And I mean, I'm certainly starting to see this and I have concerns because as I've said before in other podcasts where we've discussed cybercrime, because we've done a few of them now, we are fighting this endless battle. We don't, you know, they, they've got a whole different set of ethics and morals, obviously, because they're doing something. But they're also not as constrained as we are. We don't have the budgets and... Even when we do have the budgets, we've got to selectively choose. And, and you mentioned, Victor, being a little bit more, you know, a bit more secure than, you know, your nearest and dearest competitor or the, 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 the people underneath. You know, even getting to a reasonable level of security these days can be pretty expensive. I mean, you look at the price of GRC tools. If you want a GRC tool, and they are rising in cost as well, which is a bit crazy, you know, you're not going to get much, you know, much change out of 100k or 150k, and to to some some security people, that's pretty much either half or most of their budget. There's no much, not much else you can do. Yeah, you can you can do all the hardening you like and all the all the free aspects of security. And that is again, right? Because if you look at how yeah. companies, for example, are growing nowadays, um, they do not have the, the speed of startups that they need the, the speed they need to have you know both in in uh, in an infrastructure point of view and uh, you know software development and that sort of stuff it doesn't leave room to secure uh, your infrastructure and have proper security in place and be competitive with other startups that are doing the same mm. right and the same goes for big companies right you make an acquisition mm. there, there was this company uh, we'll call it panoply and uh, a big player actually bought them and that's already a really huge risk because you do not you know you do not properly understand how that company you know manages their infrastructure, mm. right? And what they are doing. And uh, we we saw at the beginning of the year how uh, a third actor was selling accesses to Panoply, and uh, you know like a couple of days ago they've published most of the stuff that uh, Panoply had. And now you've made an acquisition. That's part of your property, and due to decisions that you did not make from a security security standpoint, now that is a risk. To your to your own company. So, even if uh, we try to spend money and we try to prioritize, many times it's not really possible to achieve that level of uh, of uh, maturity that you expect. Or not only not possible, but you know, really really hard. Uh, but but I mean, in terms of ransomware, right? I mean, there are tried and trusted um, remedies to harden yourself against ransomware, right? Network segmentation, restricting access, Friction. and so on. Exactly. So, so having a worst case scenario, having disaster recovery, and so on. It's not as though you can't. But I think nowadays, it, it's probably easier to start a new company than try to retrofit that onto an existing legacy company. And I'm wondering. I think that's also where there's a big um, 
you know, be cut off. But but it's 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 not impossible because the reality is that a lot of these attacks they are pretty automated. It has to be said. It's not as you know, a human operator will get involved if it's worth it, but not for the opportunistic stuff. They're not going to do it on every single small business. It doesn't scale itself. And and the other aspect is to ask yourself like, what is the main attack vector that they're coming in via? Well, it's credentials and phishing. As a small business, if you focus on those, if I had a limited budget, that's why I'd focus my resources. You eliminate a large percentage of attacks that way. It's not perfect, but you know, you, you can't achieve perfect. You have to do risk reduction. Yeah. Until hmm. people start downloading dodgy copies of things with cracks. <laughs> yeah. Cool. Fantastic. Right. Well, I mean, you know, are there any kind of final conclusive thoughts to this? I mean, you know, you know, are we going to see things get a lot worse before they get better, in your opinions? Or is this is this reality now? I, I don't think, with it, as you guys say, without the whole world kind of coming together and doing something about it, which, let's face it, we've never done anything like that before for any of the, anything else, not even leading climate change, you know, whether you believe it or not. But what are we looking at here? I, I, will, I don't want to sound, um, how do you say this, uh, buzzworthy sort of you know but uh, i think that we're really close to a new revolution a new revolution similar to what we experienced in the in the industrial revolution within artificial intelligence and i would expect that in the following years thanks to ai we will be able to sort of imitate that uh, those cyber criminals and sort of be able to democratize as well uh, cyber threat intelligence or cyber cyber security for all companies in a cheaper and more accessible way that's what i would like to think you know that thanks to that support, we will be able to provide, you know, solutions that are cheaper to make and cheaper to operate so that people do not need to have, you know, a 24-7 SOC on their company to manage uh, tens of thousands of alerts and sort of get, you can sort of sort through those really quickly with less experience. The, that would be my take. Hopefully, we are close to that point. So I, I think, I'll be honest, it, it depends to me a little bit on the geopolitical, because I don't like making predictions about AI. Um, for me, that point where I can't make predictions about the impact is like the singularity occurs way before AGI, way before, where you can't predict which ways it's going. And I don't know how attackers and defenders are going to utilize it in response to one another. So we'll see. But in the short term, um, I think that based on the, the macroeconomic situation, based on a geopolitical situation, it's going to get worse before it gets better, partially because it's going to be an extension of economic warfare. And rather, I'm not saying that there's going to be nation states enacting it. They're just going to let it happen. Um, the question is how finance responds to this. What does our financial system look like in five years? And if you can work that out, you can work out what cybercrime looks like. If we move to a system where everything is on a ledger and you can trace every single transaction, it's going to put a bit of a damper into that whole thing. If we don't, if we carry on with basically currencies that you can just shift around without knowing who's behind it, we're going to carry on seeing an uptick in it because the incentive is too great. Why would they stop? Like we're just this is just kicking off as an industry. Other people are going to start seeing the money that's being made in there, and we're still looking at a phase of diversification in terms of cyber crimes. And it's not present in every geography. Like ten years ago, I think one in five Germans had a credit card. People were saying Germany is better at protecting themselves. There was just no money to get got. Now they've got more credit cards, which they're starting to see an uptick in financial crime. That is still to occur in other places. And if I look at India or Africa, where they're using maybe mobile, mainly mobile payments, they've skipped that whole, you know, 
physical bank kind of thing, I think we're going to see variations there as well. That's for the next five years. So I think we're going to see an uptick in all of this rather than, uh, than a downtrend. After five years, who knows? A primale deluge, you know, or the singularity, who knows? Yeah. <laughs> No, I, I, I must admit, I, I kind of agree with both of you there. I think you know it, it is, it is getting to a frightening state, and I think it is very difficult to predict where it is going to go. Maybe next six months will play out, and we'll have a little bit of a better idea. But for now, I think for the rest of us trying desperately to secure our environments, seriously review your defence in depth, do whatever you can to to, to shore up your defenses and make sure that, 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 that you know, you can convince Test it. the power. Sorry? Test it. Test it. Run simulations. Yes. Run, run a war game exercise. It. Get someone into to, 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 you know, emulate it. See how you'd fare. Don't rely on your backups in the worst case scenario. Try to restore them now. Do all of these things. You know, we have this, this lovely Prussian, yeah, there's a lovely Prussian military saying, sweat saves blood. So put that sweat in, save yourself from the worst damage, know what you're going to face in advance, then you can do something about it. Yeah. <laughs> and also, as a, you know, get some, get some threat intelligence, understand who the, the people you're, you're fighting, what they're doing, that kind of thing. I mean, we, we, you know, just, without jumping back into the whole conversation, I've had help from, from you guys before with regards to some of the stuff that we've seen, gotten some great intel as to what, the trends are for those particular groups, what you can expect from those types of groups. And, and intelligence is becoming such a key aspect of InfoSec now. Well, I think the neo ISO standard uh, has a, a requirement of threat intelligence. It does, but it's going to take a while to filter down into companies in, at large. And to be honest, whether you're, whether you're going down the ISO route or whether you're not, I still think nowadays it's going to be a key part of your defense in depth. Yeah, most, most definitely. Even more so... Um, taking into account what we we're talking about before, yeah. right? About yeah. the costs yeah. and prioritization and uh, understanding your risks, understanding uh, what part of you is most likely to get attacked and then being able to protect that first hmm. will definitely uh, be the best strategy. This is it. And as, as Sun Tzu said, you know, if you only know yourself and you don't know your enemy, you're only going to win 50, you know, 50% of the battles. If you don't understand yourself and you understand your enemy, then you're, you're well, he says you're going to win 100. percent Bit dubious there, but on that one for for modern cyber, <laughs> modern technology, but you're going to have a much higher level of security. But anyway, we've hit the top of our time together, as per usual. It's been an absolute pleasure debating and talking about these topics with you. I'll be tapping you guys up for more further info and maybe jumping back on other podcasts coming up on a semi-regular basis, by the sounds of it. So. Thank you ever so much, guys, and it's been an absolute pleasure uh, to, to have you on board. Thank you very much, James, Oliver. Thank you. Fantastic. And to all of you out there, thank you ever so much for, for being a part of the podcast. Look after yourselves, everybody out there. Have a great day, and we'll speak to you again soon. Thank you for listening to the Rosewire podcast. If you like the podcast, if you love the podcast, please feel free to subscribe. And if you have any questions please get in touch. Thank you very much and have a great day.